Attack of the Final Girls is a podcast about the horror genre, so listener discretion is advised. Please check the show notes for specific content warnings for this episode, and of course, beware of spoilers. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Attack of the Final Girls. I'm Teresa. And I'm Julia. And happy birthday happy to us. Happy birthday. <laughs> this is uh, episode 27, and this is our officially our one-year happy birthday episode. So, yay, there's cake, there's candles, there's balloons. There's, I was going to say streamers, but I'm going to go the what we do in the shadows route and say there's creepy paper. Creepy paper. Creepy it's paper. creepy paper. <laughs> there are party hats. It's a whole celebration. It is. And in true celebratory fashion, we're watching one of the most challenging <laughs> horror movies that we could of possibly course, find. Of course. Tonight we watched Hereditary. Definitely not a first watch. Yeah. We saw this in the theater when it came out in 2018. But I think this is the first time that we've rewatched it. Correct. Yes. I haven't rewatched it since we saw it in the theater. Juliet hasn't rewatched it. And I'll tell you what, there's definitely a lot that I forgot. Between yeah, me too. 2018 and 2022, either I forgot or I purposefully blocked out of my memory. Yeah. And there are so many reasons for that. We can definitely get into it. But uh, if you haven't seen or heard of Hereditary, it is a movie that is much talked about. It's probably Tony Collette's, like, masterpiece yeah, at this absolutely. point. Yeah, absolutely. Ari Aster directed it. This was his first feature. So he did this one in 2018 and Midsummer in 2019, which, like, what the hell? <laughs> yeah. Well, so interestingly, I was reading, I guess he has 10 films that he wants to do over the course of his career, like 10 that he has sort of conceptualized for a long time. Mm-hmm. And he actually wrote Midsummer before he wrote Hereditary, but Hereditary ended up getting made first. Interesting. Yeah. So he's kind of like doing a Tarantino thing. A little bit, yeah. Okay. This has Tony Collette as uh, sort of the main character, Annie. This was Millie Shapiro's first feature, yep. playing Charlie, Annie's daughter. Gabriel Byrne plays Steve, Tony Collette's husband, and then Alex Wolf plays Peter, their son. That's basically our main cast of characters. Annie has recently experienced the loss of her mother, and the family is sort of grieving, and then another terrible tragedy happens, and things sort of spiral out from there. And as we like to say, chaos ensues. Chaos was definitely ensues in in, in the best way yeah in the best way yeah i definitely want to say before we crack into this movie that it's really heavy this movie yeah, is incredibly totally. heavy in a similar way that midsummer is heavy yes it deals with heavy 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 topics of grief and death and suffering and all of the stages of grief and depression that you go through following the expected and unexpected loss of family and sort of like the way that your psyche can kind of fold in on itself when you're processing, when you're actively processing grief. Definitely. And it's also one of these movies, if you've not seen it, and we can go into this a little further later, That in addition to the idea of grieving and, you know, suffering and death and all of that, it's also a movie that 
a lot of people have done a lot of writing about and have really found affinities with, with different identities, different states of being. And so depending on who you are, what your situation is, how you identify, you may also, if you're a person that hasn't seen this film, find yourself connecting with the experience of the characters beyond just the grieving aspect in very heavy and deep and simultaneously meaningful ways, but it is a lot. And we can talk about some of those examples. I remember when I came out of the theater, I just felt so heavy Yeah, after having seen this movie. And I felt heavy for like several days afterwards. That wasn't the experience of everybody that I saw the movie with, but at least for me specifically, I had a lot of personal stuff that happened um, immediately before we saw this movie. And one of those things is that I lost my mother-in-law. And so watching somebody go through the active stages of grief while also losing their mother and then afterwards, immediately afterwards, losing their daughter and watching somebody kind of like crawl through that grief landscape and like clamor and try to return to normalcy and then not be able to return to normalcy and also not be able to find affinity with your own family or with the people that you would generally return to. To see that in film in this way was like, definitely hard for me. And I think that's part of the reason why I like either intentionally or unintentionally, or maybe I just forgot. But I think as part of this, I blocked out of my memory. Sure. Yeah. So rewatching this, I was like, oh, I forgot about this. Oh, I forgot about this aspect. Like the seance. Did not remember the seance aspect of it at all. If you have recently experienced a loss or if you have experienced uh, the loss of someone close to you, Brace yourself for this. It it might be something (laughs) maybe you want to watch a little bit later down the line. But I know that I can say personally that both the movie itself and the topics it deals with and also the movie watching experience of this one was incredibly intense. I have never, ever in my life heard a theater go as silent as I did in this movie. Oh, yeah. Like, I think I cried because I was so surprised. I don't know if you've ever experienced that, where you're so shocked that you cry a little bit, and then you're like, why am I crying? Yeah. (laughs) Like, I don't even know what's happening right now, but I'm crying. Yeah, totally. And we can definitely speak about that later, but one of the very first things that stood out to me when I watched through it again this time, I think that as a whole, not to say that this is wrong necessarily, but when we remember a person who has died We have a tendency to glorify them or remember the best parts of them and not. We want to remember the best parts and not make people remember the worst parts or the parts that were challenging or difficult about a person. And in the very beginning of this movie, when Toni Collette is discussing her mother, she doesn't gloss over that. Yeah. Um, She talks about her mom in the way that she actually was. And the fact that she was challenging and difficult and very stubborn. And some people can be referred to as stubborn, like, in a kind of a cheeky way. Right. But it didn't come across that way. She said, like, I don't know a lot of you. And I think if my mom were here, she'd be suspicious 
of why there are so many people here. And I just appreciated that. It kind of flipped the script on like your typical funeral where it would be like, she loved to garden and she might have been stubborn, but she always had cookies or something like that. That's always something that I found difficult is when people in funerals or in eulogies will eulogize someone and say the only the good things about them without acknowledging the bad. And, it's a very yeah. American thing. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very culturally American, which I didn't realize until I last year worked on a audio documentary with my colleague Jocelyn about grieving. And one of the folks we interviewed is an American who's living in Germany and was talking about her experience of loss and of grieving coming from American, in particular, um, Black American culture, and then going to Germany and experiencing how folks in Germany deal with death and dying and grieving. And one of the things she said is that, like, you know, culturally for her uh, as an American, it's like, you know, that old adage, you don't speak ill of the dead. Mm -hmm. And she was very surprised when she first attended some funerals in Germany And people spoke not necessarily ill of the dead, but very plainly, Mm -hmm. um, acknowledging both the good and bad of people's lives, the the details that we might gloss over here in the United States. And I really appreciate that, too, kind of getting the whole picture of a person. But she said it was very surprising to her at first. I was like, yeah, that would be surprising because that is kind of like one of those things. Um, And especially when you're dealing with somebody we later find out, and this is another kind of tricky thing that we can get into further later, that Annie's mother, I'm going to say may or may not, for reasons that'll be a little clearer later, may or may not have lived with dissociative identity disorder. That can make it really fraught sometimes when you're talking about someone very close to you that lived with mental illness, particularly a mental illness that can manifest in ways that can be sometimes very scary. Sometimes seemingly they will say some things that are very harmful to you as somebody that cares for them and they care for you. And in the U.S. especially, we aren't good about talking about mental illness. We're not good about talking about death. And especially when you put the two things together, it can be really hard to have a discussion, especially about somebody deceased, that represents the whole of their person, especially when we're talking about somebody that lived with something like dissociative identity disorder. Or I'm thinking about my friend that lived with bipolar when he died talking about him and the sum total of who he was could be very difficult depending on who you were in the room with. Some people very much didn't want to talk about those things, but a lot of us that were very close with him were like, no, that's who he was. You know, he was a person living with bipolar in all of its facets. Sometimes that made him very, very creative. And sometimes that made him very hard to understand in certain ways, you know, from a more neurotypical perspective, but it was a totality of who he was. So I think this movie deals with that really, really well and like the discomfort there that we have. Well, and Annie talks too about having to take care of her mother as she grew sicker with dementia. Yeah. 
and how she had to take care of her and they had like a room for her in their home. And I think that when you're at the end of a journey with someone with dementia and you're watching them change into a different person, you have a little bit less patience Yeah. Um, at the end of that journey because honestly, like I have a parent who has dementia and I take care of that parent who has dementia and there are days when he is great and there are days when he is not great. And I can definitely say that on the days when he's not great and things are going really bad that I don't know if I would have a lot of kind things to say. Yeah. And you just like your emotional energy is just tapped. You just don't have that, you know. And I think that the ways in which people will interact with the grief that's displayed in this story and the interpersonal relationships are very personal. Yeah, definitely. And I think that it's basically a buyer beware situation Yeah, because it could hit you really well and you could take a lot away from it and really resonate with you or it could hit you just the wrong way and it just totally shatters you and then you maybe will not like it. It's a mixed bag for sure. Yeah. Because there's a lot of difficult relationships displayed in this movie, not only just in the relationship that Annie has with her mom, but the relationship that Annie has with her daughter, who has kind of been co-opted by her mom and maybe even sort of turned against her. And then also after the death of her daughter, after the death of Charlie at Peter's hand accidentally, the fraught relationship that Annie has with her own son which she discusses later on in the movie, but it's a faceted movie that deals with all sorts of very difficult, very painful interactions between family members. It's really intense. It really is, yeah. And I think that, I don't know, if you haven't seen this movie, it's interesting because we're going to really get into like the big kind of spoilery moment. If you haven't seen this movie, you may have already had it spoiled, and I I would love to know from people, like, if you knew what happened in this movie before you saw it, like, how that impacted your viewing of it. Mm -hmm. Because I can certainly say seeing it a second time, I appreciated a lot of the intensities in a different way than I did the first time. Because the first time I was just like, like, wow, I'm just being taken on this journey with Ari Aster. But yeah, you know, it was like one of the things that I remember my partner and I talking about immediately after we left the theater, like we were in the car and we were both just like, oh my God, I did not expect that. But also like we were both instantly like, I'm very curious to see if that movie is going to hold up, Mm -hmm. like if it can sustain itself beyond the shock value of it. I think it does, Mm -hmm. having watched it a second time, but it took me this long to watch it again. Yeah. Like it's that intense. Yeah, the scene where Charlie gets decapitated is the quietest I've ever heard a theater get after that. It was so shocking that it was seriously crickets. And the theater was packed. Yes. I mean, this was pre-COVID time. We normally have like these princess seats that we sit in the (laughs) the very dead smack center of of the theater. And we didn't get those seats that time. We were, like, a little over to the left. Yeah, we were off to the side someplace. And, like, in the back a little bit. But it was completely silent. Like, there were very few empty seats in this theater. And we saw it, like, pretty much as soon as it came out. And normally you get, like, kind of a rowdy crowd in the evening on that first night. 
And it was just absolutely silent. Nobody said anything cheeky. Nobody said any, like, nobody yelled. Nobody screamed. It was just seriously crickets. And the movie is so effective because I think Ariaster knew what he was doing. He was like, everybody's going to be silent as hell after this. Yeah. So he capitalized on that silence and made the film silent as well. Peter just kind of absorbing what happened, not wanting to look, not wanting to face what happened, and also probably desperately trying to rewind. Yeah. But yeah, it was uh, crazy. And now after having watched it a second time and knowing that that was going to happen, the movie takes on a much more serious, I think, and like intense layered feel when you watch it a second time because you don't get shocked at uh, Charlie's death, but you are keying on to those relationships and those layers between the family members a lot more intensely, I think. Yeah, definitely. You know, in talking about the silence in that moment, I've been thinking a lot about effective use of silence in films, um, in part because we just saw Wakanda Forever when it came out. And it is also a great example of a film that uses silence really, really effectively. And I feel like Hereditary did it really well. And just in general, like the sound mix, I was really keying into that this time. Mm -hmm. The sound mix is so good. Like score aside, the score is excellent. Like Colin Stetson's score is amazing. It's perfect. It's phenomenal. But even aside from that, like you have these silences and then you have these moments where the sound is just so disturbing or effective like when charlie bites the chocolate bar Uh at the beginning and normally like mouth sounds kind of ick me out in films Mm -hmm. but it was just perfect you know all of those little sounds and the sawing sound at the end yeah oh my god like so good he does a really good job or whomever is responsible for the sound in the film does a really good job of doing that trick where they make the silence ring yeah. A little bit before, like, a big sound, like the noise that Charlie does throughout the movie. They'll make that silence ring right before, and then they do that clock noise, and then it's just, like, it, like, is so sharp and so yeah. surprising. It's fantastic. A movie silence and treatment of silence is just as important as its treatment of sound, and this movie does an amazing job of both. Because a lot of the movie is quiet, Yeah. Very specifically, after Charlie's killed or Charlie dies, Peter goes home and he sleeps. Mm -hmm. He goes to bed and he wakes up and he lays there with his eyes open. And then you can hear Annie downstairs kind of milling around. And then you hear her discover Charlie's body in the car and then start wailing. It's very normal. It's kind of a natural, like, house is stirring after everybody wakes up thing. It's fantastic. So good. And it ratchets up the suspense that way, too, because you know what's going to happen. You know that Annie will discover her daughter in the car. So you're just waiting and waiting for it. And also, speaking of sounds, Toni Collette's uh, grieving wails throughout the movie and her crying and stuff is just I was watching a lot more closely this time and I just thought like what the thing I always say I don't know where you had to go but (laughs) oh yeah yeah it's intense I I did read and I shared this with Juliet a little earlier I read that Toni Collette had to go to the gym a lot while she was making this movie because she was like 
so overwhelmed by the intensity of the filmmaking that she's like, I have to move. I have to do oh, yeah. physical work. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, yeah, we've been there. I mean, like when you have a panic attack and you have to walk around. Yep. Otherwise, exactly. otherwise you're like, I'm going to die if I keep sitting here. Yeah. So I feel that like. Tracks. Yeah. So another sort of early scene that I really appreciated, and this is pre-Charlie's death, was when Annie is new at the grief support group and she's asked to share. And at first she says no, and then they kind of like draw it out of her. I really appreciated the way that she was trying to explain the struggle of having caring for a really an ailing parent that not only is getting worse because of dementia or because of illness, I guess, but already having a fractured relationship with that person. Yeah. I appreciated the accuracy of her trying to explain that to the other people, how it looked very real. She's super withdrawn, like physically, she's got her hands crossed over her chest. She clearly does not want to explain this. It seems like something that she's had to try and explain before and just nobody really understands. But she does anyways. And once again, this is super personal, but I have absolutely been there. Yeah. And tried to explain, like, I don't really have a good relationship with this person, but I'm still going to try and take care of them because they're getting worse and I can't possibly, you know, just let them slide into oblivion. They did an incredible job. Yeah. And it really felt real. Yeah. I love that scene for the absolutely plain and accurate language that she uses. Like, she doesn't try to pretty it up or soften it at all. She says the thing out loud. And to think about my own reaction to that, like, having to sort of go through my own thing of, wow, is what she's saying harsh or is what she's saying accurate? Mm -hmm. And is the accuracy of it what makes it feel harsh to me? Like, that was a really interesting self-examination that I got to do the second time to think about the fact that everything she was saying was colored with very little detail. It was, you know, it was fairly, you know, my father died because of this, you know, my father lived with this mental illness. Here is how he died. My brother died of suicide. He, in his note, blamed my mother. My mother was living with this. You know, it was all just like straight to the point accurate. And I think because we're so unused to having conversations in plain language like that, especially when it comes to mental illness and neurodivergence, it's like, it was interesting to kind of check myself like, oh, no, she's not. She's actually not being harsh at all. She's saying the thing. Mm -hmm. Especially when you've had to explain on behalf of other people multiple yeah. times as you've gone through life. That's very yeah. accurate. You just get really good at the practice of explaining it as plainly as possible because you don't feel like you have time to mince words and be like, well, my mom struggled a lot and she had, you know, she did this and this, but then also, you know, she did good things and all that. It's like, no, we don't have time for that. Let yeah. me just tell you what happened. I don't know for sure. I think I would have to watch it again more closely, but it seems like it was not being received very well in the grief group. Yeah. Again, I would I would want to watch that again, too, to see if that was my perception yeah. that people weren't receiving it well. But I, that's what I got from it. Yeah. Was that like they, they were just kind of like, ooh. Yeah. Like, like 
my mom died and she was just old. It seemed like Tony Collette didn't want to share and then she kind of overshared and then it made people uncomfortable and they couldn't connect with her. And I think that's why she didn't end up going back for a while. Yeah. It's because she was just like, well, I guess I overshared. Yeah. And that's so interesting too. Like that dynamic of like being made to feel like you've overshared when really you've only done what is asked of you, which is to share your truth. Yeah. And to, like, then get into that guilt spiral of, like, ooh, maybe I brought everybody down. But, like, actually, that's just your truth. And you're neither, you know, like, (laughs) you're neither speaking it to lift people up or bring them down. You're just, again, you're just, like, saying the thing. But I think that's very real, too, of being, like, no, I'm not making this up. Like, this is actually just... This is just my situation. This is my life. This is my truth. And then feeling like, ooh, sorry. Yeah. Sorry. (laughs) And also not ever having shared. It doesn't really seem like she's shared a lot. Yeah. Because not only does she talk about her most recent loss, which is her mom, she also talks about her brother and her dad. And it's like, it just kind of like cascades into this thing where she's like, oh, well, I'm talking about this. I can't talk about this without talking about these other two things. And then she's like, oh, oops, (laughs) I suppose I have overshared. And I would imagine that if she stayed there long enough and like heard the other grief stories, she probably would have been like, oh, whoops. (laughs) Well, I think that's why she's able to make the connection with Joan Mm -hmm. later is, you know, when Joan, and of course it's all under a guise, but when Joan flags her down to check on her, you can see Annie getting into that guilt again when Joan is asking, how are you doing with your mother's death? And she, it's weird that I'm going to say has to tell her, but has to tell her like, well, now I've lost my daughter from this. My daughter was killed from this horrible accident. And she kind of braces herself and starts to retreat into herself. And then when Joan is able to say like, I lost both my son and my grandson. They drowned four months ago. All of a sudden it was like, oh, okay, we can, we can connect because you're not, you know, you're validating my grief and you're validating that like these horrible things in succession are not something to pull away from, but it's just, you know, my situation. And it's unfortunate that the only person that she actually is able to connect with in her grief, not her family, yeah. Not, not anybody else from the grief group is sort of a plant. Yeah. It's unfortunate that that's who she's able to connect with because if she was able to process her grief or maybe more normally, I'm using normally in air quotes, or typically, you know, connect with other people in her grieving group, maybe she wouldn't have gone down this terrible path, but she did. And Joni just ended up being the person that was, like, there to kind of receive that amount of grief. Two questions related to Joan. Did she actually lose her son and grandson? Was that real or was that all? I almost said no immediately. That was, like, my knee-jerk reaction. But she lost somebody named Louie because who else was she contacting via the seance? I mean, of course, she could be contacting Paymon or whatever, but... At the same token, it's like she was connecting with somebody via the seance. Yeah. Who said, I love you, Grandma. So. Okay. And then follow up question. I think, but I'm not sure. On the one hand, I 
think maybe the whole Paymon thing has to happen through Annie's family line. Mm -hmm. But maybe not. Could the loss of Joni's son and grandson be something tied to trying to, within maybe chosen members of the cult, use male children as vessels? Oh, definitely. I definitely think so. So if Joni really lost her son and grandson, it probably was via Paymon. Because why not, you know, try as best as you can I don't think it necessarily had to go through Annie's family, like through her mom. I think it just so happened that her mom tried. But I really think, honestly, that the entire cult likely would try. Yeah. I mean, why not? Like, I know that Annie's mother had been grooming Charlie from a young age. Mm -hmm. But it was mostly because she thought Charlie had that, like, spirit or predisposition already for Paymon. But why not? try and hedge your bets and if you're gonna try and call this demon forth and not to mention peter is just a host for paymon right so he's not gonna be able to exist in peter forever i mean i don't know if it's like a possession thing then honestly he probably won't be hosting paymon for very long because at least in other types of popular media, the human body doesn't do well with the demon possession for very long. Right, so right. if that's how that goes, then uh, he probably won't be possessing Peter for very long and they'll have to find new vessels. So yeah, I do think that it was related. I think the only reason I clued into that is actually because there was a similar kind of hint in Midsummer that I think we both clued in on when... I can't even remember his name right now. He's like, oh, yeah, I lost my parents in a fire. And you don't realize till the end of the movie. You're like, oh, oh, yeah. I know. I, yeah. Okay. Yikes. The friend um, that, the friend that yeah. brings him there. Yeah. yeah. The friend that brings him into the cult. So I, I was almost wondering because of that. I was like, oh, is this like the same thing where she's like, oh, I lost my son and grandson. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. That makes sense. There's lots of layers. Yeah. Speaking of the mom, since we're talking about her having dissociative identity disorder and the dad having depression, and I think Annie said psychotic depression. I believe so, yeah. And starving himself. Do you think that the mom really had dissociative identity disorder? Do you think the dad really did have psychotic depression and starved himself? I guess it depends on how you want to take the movie. Okay. So... As the movie is presented, I don't think so. Okay. I think both of those things had to do with the cult and possession and all of that. However, I've seen some really good writing about mental illness in this film. And the Consequence podcast did a really good episode about specifically schizophrenia Mm -hmm. and this film. And Annie actually Mm -hmm. displaying symptoms of schizophrenia and sort of being portrayed as a character living with undiagnosed schizophrenia. And so I think that if you're going on the whole possession thing, no, all of that was a way for the rest of the world to explain away the cult activities and the possession. However, I also think that there was good attention paid to all of that. So if you are somebody that wants to watch it through that lens and like 
identify with that or identify with the experience of living with or living with a family member or somebody close to you that also experienced that, I also think that's a really, really valid read on this film. Like, I think it's a film that can work in so many ways and it's kind of what makes it really great and can make it really heavy for a lot of different people in a lot of different ways. But when I listened to that episode of the Consequence podcast, I was just like, yeah, okay, that's not my experience. But listening to folks relate their lived experience with this film, I think that's a totally valid interpretation of it. Yeah. Um, it's it's not what I went to first, but I can I, I feel like it's such a valid read of the film. Yeah. At first I thought, okay, dissociative identity disorder. But then if you have to, if you go back and think about the intentionality that there had to have been for Annie's mom to leave her that note right. in the spiritualism book that she left her. And also having to think about, like, how you'd have to protect your daughter because your daughter is not a son. Right. And essentially you need her to have a son in order for you to have another shot at getting Paymon to, you know, possess that person. It definitely seems like there would have to be some guarded, you know, lifestyle choices there and potentially the dad maybe he was in on it maybe he was not in on it well and annie's brother right and annie's brother who was obviously at least attempting to be possessed by this he committed suicide prior to being able to fully he was in the vulnerable state because you have to be vulnerable but he was able to kind of release himself from that cycle prior to the full possession you could definitely read it either way. Like, did she really have dissociative identity disorder or was she possessed or like working with somebody else kind of inside of the shell of her? And I would be really interested to rewatch this um, because I'm not super familiar with the signs and symptoms of schizophrenia. I would be really interested to watch this again with that kind of in mind. Yeah. Watching Annie for schizophrenic kind of symptoms and things like that. How much do you think Annie knew about the cult? Because I go back and forth on it on the second watch, and it's something I would want to watch again, like specifically just trying to figure that out. Because I think as it's revealed the first time you watch it, because we're seemingly learning along with her, or we feel like we're learning along with her. But when you start to put the pieces together about her childhood, like, I feel like she knew and maybe she repressed it or denied it or perhaps even decided that, no, the cult thing was all something perhaps she invented in her own head to cope with, you know, living with a family that seemed to involve a lot of trauma. But I think maybe she did know a little bit about the cult, I definitely think there's a lot of compartmentalization that Annie had to do because it seems like the cult is very intertwined. Yeah. And Annie did say that there were times when she did not talk to her mother. Right. Like after she had Peter, there was a no contact situation until she had Charlie, her daughter. And she mentions, she she uses interesting language here. She says she gave Charlie to her mom, which... I don't think, and I still don't think that that means that she actually actually physically gave her to, but there had to have been some sort of knowledge on her part that Peter was in danger, 
and Charlie was not. Yeah. Because of that intentionality in terms of her words. So I definitely think that when you're in a satanic or demonic cult, it's probably going to take over more of your life than yeah. <laughs> like soccer practices. So I think that Annie was aware of that and also had to have known something or put some of the pieces together after her brother's suicide. Because suicide is, I mean, terrible. It's it's awful. And it leaves a mark on you more so, I think, than a lot of other types of, you know, death. And for it to happen under such circumstances, for him to say, mom was putting people inside me, I think Annie would have had to have been like, okay, yeah, what the hell? Especially in that whole dream thing, too, dream-ish, where she's saying to Peter, like, at first she says, you know, I didn't want to be your mother. And she says, I didn't want to be your mother. Not, I didn't want to be a mother. I didn't want to be your mother. Like, that's interesting. The language there is so interesting. You know, and she says, I tried to miscarry. I did all of these things to try to um, miscarry, you know, and then he's saying back to her, like, you you wanted to kill me. And she says, no, I was trying to save you. I'm yeah. Like, That's some kind of awareness there. Yeah. And then at the end of that dream, she sort of like recalls what when she was sleepwalking before when she had doused Peter and Charlie and herself in paint thinner and then tried to set them all on fire. It definitely seemed like her sleepwalking was very dangerous and also was sort of revealing some of that repressed, um, whatever she had realized and maybe suppressed earlier in her life, the sleepwalking was a way to deal with that in a dangerous way. Yeah. So many layers to this movie. I did want to say, too, that I think that this movie, similar to Midsummer, does a really good job of not keeping the bad parts to nighttime. Yeah, definitely. Like, we normally see in horror movies that uh, scary or sad or horrific times in a movie always happen during the nighttime, but Ari Aster is not afraid at all to have all that stuff happen out in the daytime. Mm -hmm. Now, Charlie was decapitated at night. However, we don't get to see the effect of that until the daytime when you see her head. And honestly... That was another thing, like, that was so shocking in the theater is is to see her head, just no filters, no, you know, flinching, just this steady shot of her head laying on the side of the road. It's just like, oh, God, this sucks. Yeah. (laughs) You can't look away. It's like a train wreck. It's seriously like a train wreck. Tiny, cool piece of trivia. The Paymon seal that they used in the movie that was on uh, the grandmother's necklace Mm -hmm. is actually, there is a payment seal, but this one is different than that because they were like, well, in the exorcist, they use the real, you know, they actually use sigils and it was cursed by a bunch of bad luck. So let's change it a little bit so that we're not, (laughs) I was like, you know what? We always say, don't mess with stuff that you don't understand. Yeah. And I was going to say like, you know, they were like, hey, you know what? Let's not risk the superstition. But that also transitions into the idea. 
Don't have a seance. Oh, my God. Don't have a seance. <laughs> First of all, you're not a medium. Yeah. Don't have a seance without a skilled medium. Yeah. And also, like, don't have a seance when you're in, like, a really vulnerable state. No. Like, don't wake up your whole family and be like, hey, we're all dealing with a lot. The best thing for us is to have a seance right now. No, do not. Don't yeah. do it. Yeah. Like, really bad idea. If you're going to go with a medium, maybe don't do that, like, immediately after. You yeah. Know, a, gr a grief-stricken moment. Like, wait a little while. Yeah. Or, like, do it via Twitch so that, <laughs> so you're not in the room. No, I'm just yeah. kidding. I, I don't uh, I don't recommend that either. <laughs> um, <laughs> don't go to like a random acquaintance's apartment and do a, a two person seance either because that was really sketchy. Yeah. No. And especially like with the amount of stuff that actually ended up happening, I'd be like, I am out of here. Yeah. <laughs> so being our resident uh, Greek myth lover juliet yes what did you think of the uh the free will and sophocles tiny little discussion that they had there in peter's classroom um when they're talking about sophocles and like free will and is it more tragic if you know that if you had the option to opt out of this or is it more tragic if you know you're kind of on this train that isn't going to stop so ari Aster has said you know he kind of thinks of this movie like a Greek tragedy. And I tend to agree because in Greek tragedies, the characters are fated to, fated to their fate. Um, <laughs> but they, they, are, they are fated to um, have these things happen. And, you know, in Greek tragedy, usually the only thing that can relieve tragedy is a, in, in Greek plays is a deus ex machina, is the god, you know, the god from the machine. But in most Greek tragedies, it's just like, nah, like y'all are resigned to your fate, you know? <laughs> and even if you think you've gotten away with it, because in Greek tragedy, it's always a tragedy cycle, like <laughs> it's gonna catch up with you. Like I'm yeah. thinking of like the Oresteia, like, you know, um, the Furies come for all in the end. Even those who think that they are avenging others, like you are resigned to your fate no matter what. So I thought it was a nice touch to have that. I also liked the reference to Iphigenia. Mm -hmm. I like that story in general um, because it's an interesting one to examine. Um, they've covered Iphigenia's story a lot on Let's Talk About Myths, Baby, like the different writings of that story. And I thought that that was great because... You know, really, Iphigenia is this character who is tricked into being a sacrifice for something that has pretty much nothing to do with her. Mm -hmm. And I feel like you could look at both Charlie and Peter as Iphigenia, mm -hmm. really, in this story. Um, because on the one hand, we lose Charlie very early on, and Charlie has to go for Peter to be primed for Paimon. But really, Peter is the sacrifice. Mm -hmm. Because Peter is the one who has no choice in the matter. Mm -hmm. You know, he's the chosen one and he he's just the vessel mm -hmm. for this demon. So I like that that was in there too, especially at the moment it was in the movie, the reference to Iphigenia, because that was really when you're like, oh man, like 
Peter is screwed. Like, yeah. he is screwed big time. And nothing he is going to do. And nothing his mother is going to do either. Because that factors into the Iphigenia story. Is that Clytemnestra was tricked into bringing Iphigenia to Alice to be sacrificed. Mm-hmm. And there was nothing that she could do. Even as her mother and as the wife to the king. Like, she could do nothing to stop the sacrifice. Yeah. The interesting part of that is that in that story, Agamemnon loses... Yes. Like, even though Iphigenia is sacrificed, Agamemnon loses, like, ultimately. Yeah. And in Peter's case, like, they win. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> like that. that is the, the kind of interesting twist on that. So, like, you're kind of primed to think, like, okay, Peter's definitely going to lose. And Peter does lose. Like, it, oh, yeah. he's the loser. He's the Iphigenia in this situation. But uh, the cult members win. Yeah, you know. but do they truly? If we're thinking a true, a true like Greek tragedy cycle, because Iphigenia is like one of the plays where we don't have the full cycle. True, um, true. We do have the full Oresteia, which is where Agamemnon gets his, and true. then Orestes gets his. Yeah, because really, it's like the moment where we're leaving Peter is sort of the end of Iphigenia at Alice, which is like. If a Janiya gets sacrificed and the Greeks are like, yay, we got our wind. Let's go kill some Trojans. And of course, we know that the various Greeks, ultimately, although they win the Trojan War, all of the figures get punished in some way by the gods right. or by other uh, mortals eventually. And maybe the cult members like get laser eyed or something like immediately afterwards. We don't know. Yeah. Well, and it's it's the whole thing of like, you know, we see this in a lot of horror films with cults and summoning of demons like is that really where you want to throw all your all your chips here yeah is a demon really gonna be like hey guys thank you yeah (laughs) it's cool let me bless you with these riches no man the whole thing is like if, if this is an evil being it's gonna be like great and now you are my slaves yeah or my dinner or both and they do mention that he's like the king of mischief so it's like Okay. Yeah, do not mess with a trickster god. Yeah. It's a really bad idea. Yeah, definitely. Okay, so let's talk about the transformation aspect of the movie because I initially, at the beginning of the show, I was talking a lot about grief and how the movie deals with grief, but you mentioned that it deals a lot with transformation as the yeah. course of the movie goes on. I want to hear more about what you have to say about that. It deals with transformation in a lot of different ways. And one way that I've seen, again, there's so much writing on this film. It's really awesome. And there are so many different reads on it. But um, there was a really good article on them, um, which talked about looking at it through a lens of transmasculine people. Okay. You know, about the fact that Charlie was or was led to believe, depending on how you want to read the film, that she was born, you know, that Charlie was not supposed to be a girl. Hmm. Um, And that Charlie had to escape the body, Mm -hmm. you know, that she, and I'll just use she here because that's how we understand the character, that she was born into. And by the end of the film, we are looking at Peter's masculine, you know, cis masculine body, but they address that person as Charlie. Yeah. At the very end. And that was interesting. I did wonder about that, about how, like, if 
if Charlie was already kind of imbued with the spirit of Paimon, because yeah. they do mention that they corrected her form yes. into, because Paimon prefers to be in a masculine form, they corrected her form. And so if that meant that Charlie had to die so that her spirit left and that's what entered Peter was like both Charlie's spirit and also Paimon at the same time, like the power of Paimon, or if it was just Charlie's spirit, like if she already was born like that. Right. Interesting to take it either way. But yeah, the transmasculine kind of view of that is that's fascinating. But as horror does in so many different movies, like it's it deals with such a layered mix of topics that it's easy to be like, yes, we can also look at this intense transformation We can look at it as demonic. We can look at it as transformative. We can look at it through a trans point of view. It's it's so versatile. It is. (laughs) It is. And likewise, if you wanna if you wanna put that aside and just look at Peter as a character, like his journey from being this quite frankly very average teenager at mm-hmm. the beginning you know he is um he's a well-written character you know he is he's a little bit of a slacker but not like a comical slacker mm-hmm. he's still a good kid like he asks his parents if he can take the car to go to the party he takes his little sister to a party and is not really arguing about like oh, i don't want to take my sister but is more like do you really think she wants to go? Yeah, <laughs> like as a matter of practicality. <laughs> yeah, as a matter of practicality. Like, do you think this 13-year-old who is obviously, you know, deals with social situations very differently than he does? Like, he's a very loving brother, but we watch him just get completely destroyed in every way possible through this film. And then at the end sort of rebuilt and rebirthed as this as this king. Yeah. And even he is just kind of like and and the interesting part is at various points there are some points where you can tell who's in control. Mm-hmm. You know, it's Peter or it's Paymon trying to get in or or Charlie depending on how you want to take that. At the very end I don't know who's in there quite honestly yeah or if it's all of them yeah and i think and i kind of like that ari aster in his two films so far he likes those end shots where you have the sort of anointed one just looking into the camera and we're supposed to sort of take of that what we will Mm -hmm. um just like danny at the end of midsummer and I truly, like, I could go back to that end scene over and over again because I'm not sure who we're seeing in that moment. Yeah. And that person, although Peter is, like, the anointed one, Paimon, he also doesn't look all powerful or, you know, like, proud or, like, he is a new person or anything like that. He still kind of has that, like, sort of stunned look, I want to say, like, almost, like, he doesn't know what's going on. But he does. Ah, it's truly a credit to Alex Wolf. Uh, yeah, it's he's an he's a fantastic actor. I also wanted to say that upon second watch, and you pointed this out while we were watching it, when you watch the movie the first time after Charlie's death, you can definitely 
think that Peter is kind of dissociating. Yeah. Because he's just inadvertently caused the death of his sister and he's very upset and very distraught. But you can also start to see the threads of him dissociating and how Charlie's death has made him vulnerable and how he starts to experience those things that are going to cause Paymon to be able to take him over. Yeah. Um, you pointed that out while we were watching it. I was like, man, yeah, this is the first watch through. You can definitely mistake that as being like grief, but it's not all. Yeah. It's also like he's changing. And I did, too, want to say that the movie is really a family drama, honestly, until we get, like, probably three-quarters of the way through the movie. Do you know that when Ari Aster wrote this, it actually was not a horror film at all? It was just a family drama? I, on, honestly, I 100% believe that. I think that that makes perfect sense. Um, summer was supposed to be his first horror film. Well, I mean, <laughs> family drama is pretty horrific. Yeah. So. <laughs> um, but... I wanted to say that the use of the very distressing physical horror in the last quarter of the movie, not to say that Charlie's death isn't distressing because it absolutely is and it will knock you for a loop if you're not expecting it, but the last 25% of this movie with Annie accidentally setting Steve on fire yeah, with like her self-decapitation with the piano wire the mother being in the attic already decapitated after the cult members having dug her up and she's you know decomposing all of those things um peter alex wolf's character peter smashing his face in the desk very distressing all of those things like the use of that stark physical horror distressing physical horror with practical effects is absolutely it is a thousand percent effective up until that point there like it's just a really a movie that's very sad and and upsetting and then you get to this like the crunchy bits of the supernatural and you're like oh there's something else going on here <laughs> and then you have those like very in rapid succession um physical horror it's very effective and it's very disorienting as you kind of crest into the last part of the movie. And um, this is also very personal, but Joni Mitchell over the credits kind of wrecked my life. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Once again, my, my, uh, my mother-in-law who I lost, Joni Mitchell was her favorite. So, so when we watched this movie the first time and we hit the credits and Joni Mitchell started playing, I started crying and when I was there with my partner, he's like, are you okay? And I was like, I don't even know how to explain this right now. <laughs> like, I don't even know how to tell you why this is upsetting. And, like, the rest of the movie is fine, but Joni Mitchell is not. I don't know. <laughs> you know, like, it was hard. It was hard to uh, hard to explain. But even after watching it a second time, much more of a slow burn, I think. Less shocking this time. Yeah. But just as much of an impact. And I could definitely, like, feel it in my chest after I watched it, so. Yeah. I thought it was interesting to watch it, knowing that the cult stuff is real Mm -hmm. the whole time. Because the first time I watched it, even after Charlie's death, you spend three-fourths of the movie going, is there actually something supernatural happening? Is there a cult? Was her mom into some weird stuff? Or is this all a manifestation of this family's grief? And Mm -hmm. then, you know, you get to, like, the last 
fourth of the movie. You're like, oh, no, this is really real. Wow, here here we go. <laughs> and that's another kind of moment of shock, I think. Um, yeah. There were so many pieces written after this was after this came out, like, explaining the ending of Hereditary, because I think it took so many people by surprise. Like, oh, no, wow, we're, we're doing this. Yeah. So watching it from the beginning, knowing, you know, knowing in that funeral scene, from the moment we see it, oh, those were all the cult members, you know. Oh, that necklace she's wearing, that's like the little cult symbol, you know, all of that. That was really interesting this time. Oh, definitely. Yeah, to know that they're real and like pick up on all of the little the yeah. signs and symbols of that. Just to close this out, I'm just going to say uh, Tony Collette deserved several Academy Awards. Yes. And the fact that she didn't even get nominated for it's one. Criminal. It's It's literally like... It's the worst thing that ever happened yeah. to 2018 cinema. Yeah. She 100,000 percent deserved at least to be nominated. I challenge you to tell to give me an actress who in 2018 put out as nuanced of a performance. And I say nuanced, but honestly, like as powerful as a, perfor- a performance as Tony Collette did in this movie. Exactly. Now I'm like, who won the Oscar that year? Oh my gosh. Because <laughs> now I'm going to get all mad. Let's see. Oh, uh, Frances McDormand, who I like. For Three Billboards? Yeah, I, did, I didn't love that movie. But I like Frances McDormand. I didn't see it. Now, for Best Supporting, Alice and Janney won for I, Tanya, which... That was pretty hilarious. That was pretty great. <laughs> yeah. But also, like, just another example of how she should have at least gotten nominated. Yeah, definitely. How the Academy hates horror movies. Yeah. Oh, well, that year, Jordan Peele got Best Screenplay, although, in my opinion, he was robbed for Best Director for Get Out. But who got it was Guillermo del Toro. Shape of Water? And Shape of Water got Best Picture. So that year, they were a little kinder to horror than they normally are. Yeah. Typically, there's nothing. She still should have gotten nominated. She should have gotten nominated. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Do you know what we're doing next I time? I do know what we're doing next time. Yes. I looked ahead because I was like, this time I will not be caught off guard. But why don't you tell us? Okay. So next time we have the kind of rare opportunity to celebrate a film's 100th anniversary. What? Obviously, there aren't. As many surviving films from 1922, but it just so happens that uh, one of the hallmarks of horror cinema is turning 100 years old this year, and that is Nosferatu. So we will be discussing that next time uh, because we do love a good vampire film. And I have only seen this one one time before, so. Oh my goodness. Yeah. This is exciting. And this is also our first silent film. Ooh. Yeah. Right. I'm down. First silent film, and this will definitely be our oldest to date. To date. There is like one thing. Well, not just one. There are a couple of things that we could eventually do older than this, but we don't have as many options, let's sure. just say. Yeah. And also, this is our first episode uh, post-Patreon launch. Haha, <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, Happy one year anniversary. Yes. We pulled the trigger on that earlier. <laughs> yep. And uh, so, yeah, definitely check that out. If you can, help support us, help keep us doing this thing and participating with us in the crazy world that horror is. Yeah. Patreon.com slash Attack of the Final Girls. And on all of your uh, 
social media is the good and bad and the ugly in terms of social media. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. We'll be on Twitter until that ship sinks, probably. Yeah, yeah. We're going down with that one. <laughs> but we are now on Mastodon. If if that uh, floats your boat, don't be scared of it. It's okay. I promise. Can they find us on Discord? How do you find us on Discord? I think they can search for us. Okay. And if not, just like hit us up on one of our other socials and we'll get you connected. Yes. To the Discord. We are also on TikTok and Instagram. So come hang out with us. Woo! Thanks for listening to Attack of the Final Girls. Find us online at attackofthefinalgirls.com. We are Attack of the Final Girls on Instagram and TikTok and Final Girls Pod on Twitter. Our theme music is by House Ghost and is available on Rad Girlfriend Records. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcasting app so you don't miss an episode and rate and review on Apple Podcasts so more people can find the show. I'm Juliet. And I'm Teresa. Until next time, stay scary. Stay scary.